Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks, Map of the Maze. I'm your producer, Richard Ayliffe. You're going to hear a slightly different perspective in this episode of the podcast as we talk to Mark Farrell-Brown. Initially a private equity investor, Mark has now turned to coaching and mentoring. Obviously, there is a huge aspect of this in what we do at Pep Talks, so we bring our membership together on a one-to-one basis through our buddy system and in a larger peer-to-peer learning environment through our events. Coaching, however, brings a different and often overlooked experience where you can work with someone entirely focused on your goals in a non-judgmental setup. In this discussion, Mark is going to walk us through what the coaching process looks like and how it can lead to you becoming a more well-rounded and effective leader and PE-backed CEO. Now, over to Sam and Mark. So uh, here we are recording our first podcast for some time and we've got Mark Farrah-Brown joining us. Now, Mark uh, and I knew each other many moons ago, more than a decade, I think, when Mark was in his previous career as as a private equity investor. We've reconnected over the last few months, which has been great to do, and that's happened through one of our founding members within the Pep Talks community which has been great. So it's, it's been really good to catch up with you and see you again. And we thought it would be um, Mark's um, transformation really from private equity investor to now coach, we thought would be a, would make a really good podcast because for two reasons, because it's a good, interesting story. And secondly, I think uh, what he's doing now is, is of great interest to us. And I think it might be some, of some interest to our members in our community because Within Pep Talks, we are a peer-to-peer community. We support CEOs and their management teams, and we do that in many ways. And uh, one of those is through a buddy system, which which really we we define and talk about as a ready-made friend. In you know a, a ready-made, super experienced private equity friend, uh, but that's what they are. They're a friend, and they're a friend that they can lean on. But sometimes the conversation comes up, and the, and the scenario comes up where. Uh, perhaps the CEO is looking for more support. And we've had this happen uh, repeatedly over the last two, two and a half years. And I think as our community gets bigger, uh, it will happen more regularly. And uh, we want to be well set up. And I've been thinking about setting ourselves up to introduce the right people uh, when that scenario happens. And um, it was fortuitous, really, in that we've reconnected. And here you are, somebody who's who's um, developed and transitioned into coaching. So... Um, that's my introduction for you, Mark. What? Well, thanks, Sam. Thank you for inviting me here today. So I look forward to uh, to our conversation. Yeah. So why don't why don't we just tell the listeners about how you've how how did this transformation happen for you? I don't know any ex private equity investors that have have made such a transition. So I think it's a good story. Well, it all started with some slightly stressed out, frustrated parents who were wondering what to do with this hyperactive, skinny little seven-year-old. And my dad, um, dad's brainwave was to uh, introduce me to squash. So he sawed in half his old greys of Cambridge squash racket, which is a crime in itself, I think, and put a handle on it, and we started playing squash together. I don't think he was much good because I, I remember beating him after a couple of years. Oh, he um, was a nice dad. He was obviously a nice yeah, dad. Um, not something I do for my son. <laughs> um, I, you know, I got pretty good at it. I, got, I was one of the top players at the club. But when I was 12 years old, I was, I was plateauing. I hadn't grown like everyone else had. And I was losing to people I used, I used to beat. And I 
saw a coach at the local club and I went back to my parents and said, can I, can I get a coach? And they said, yeah, sure. So I um, started having some lessons. Now, he helped me with the technical stuff, but actually what I remember most is the mental side. I had real problems playing left-handers. Uh, the county where I lived, Buckinghamshire, seemed to be full of left-handers. And I basically went on court. When I went on court to play them, I, I'd almost lost the game. So he got me to reframe how I looked at them and uh, left-handers. And he said, well, look, see them as uh, uh, people to cooperate, you know, to help you improve your backhand. And actually ended up, my, my backhand became my, my favorite shot. He really accelerated my learning like that. So from an early age, I'd seen the benefit of coaching and how it could accelerate your learning. Next part of the story, 28 year old, in church, listening to my grandfather's eulogy. He had had an amazing life. I had a great relationship with him, but I hadn't fully appreciated what he'd done. And he had um, been part of the Nuffield Foundation, which is a charitable trust. And he used to go around the world giving, donating money to good causes. And he ended up setting up his own charitable trust. And I remember very vividly thinking, one day I'm gonna do something impactful. Took a while to sink in, but I, but, I, but I remember that. And the third part of the transformation um, comes from, I have a natural ability to observe. I was the quiet one in the classroom and I love deep relationships. I love really getting to know people. And during my private equity days, I really liked the, the relationship building side. And the stories, I love listening to their stories when we had the first meeting and finding out, you know, about their struggles and how they did it. Um, but also, it was always a very optimistic story. So I was, I was always trying to find, get them off, off the presentation into other parts. And I always kind of enjoyed the completion time because stress levels went up and the mask often came off. So that pleasant person that you met could change. And sometimes we, you know, we didn't do the deal because of what we saw. And also I remember having done the deal, you know, building those relationships. You know, for me, the management team are the heroes. They're the ones, they're the ones that make it work. But it was always a slightly strange relationship. We relied on them, but we could, we could sack them. <laughs> and that power dynamic really interested me. And it wasn't until I got some coaching myself and I understood the coaching relationship and how pure that was, that I realized there was a better way that I could help people. Because I think, although, you know, I've always wanted to help people fulfill their dreams. Bringing that all together, my long held desire to do something impactful and my love of building deep relationships, I realized it dawned on me, I wanted to be a coach. And so as is my want, I had to do it properly and I found what I think is the best organization, the best training organization in the country, Mayla Campbell, and I found the best tutor, and Schooler, who's written a Financial Times book on business coaching. And where I am today, um, I think I found my place in the world where I can be most impactful. Mm. Your, your private equity career, so you spent quite a lot, how long was it, 10, 15 years in PE? Investing into entrepreneurial businesses, really, wasn't it? You know, you weren't really doing the sort of 
big secondary buyouts. Yeah, most first. most of my focus is on the small, medium size and and on you know entrepreneurial end. Do you think what you learned as an investor has equipped you well in terms of helping CEOs and founders and management teams with the challenges they face? Yeah, I think it's it's part of the journey. You know, am I uniquely placed? I don't know, but I've I've seen it from various perspectives as an executive as an executive in private equity, and and now as a now as a coach um, of private equity executives. So they don't have to explain what they're going through. I I have seen the journey many times. So as a coach, you don't have to be an expert but it's extremely helpful in building the relationship very quickly if you do understand what they're going through. Yeah. So we'll have listeners out there thinking about, oh, I, I did think I'd quite like to find a coach or um, I, I, am, I am thinking I might do with some support on this journey that's a bit, it's a bit more structured and formulaic over a longer period of time. So you know, what, what should they expect from a coach? What does the, what does the process look like? So I think a great way of bringing out what coaching is, is, is describe the uniqueness of the coaching conversation. So five parts to it. It's purposeful, it's outcome focused. We're there to meet your needs. Secondly, it's, there's no hidden agenda and I'm exclusively there for you. The skin in the game is, my, is your success, however you define it. I'm not your boss, I'm not your HR director, I'm not responsible to shareholders, to creditors, to other board members. Third part is the deep listening. And for me, in a way, this is the most powerful part. Deep listening encourages, optimizes thinking. People want to be heard, but they're not often heard. So we become your thinking partner. Fourthly, it's a confidential conversation. It's psychologically safe. There's no judgment. So with the confidentiality, people feel free to talk about anything. I often hear uh, people say, well, I've, I've never said that out loud to anyone. Not, you know, not their chairman, not even their partner. And the no judgment side, you know, when you, you know you're not going to be criticized, again, frees up freeze up what you're going to say. And the, and the point of all that is that you get to the root cause quicker. Mm -hmm. And then the fifth part is the fact that it's supportive. So lots of positive energy, but it's challenging. And it's not deferential. And it's not a soft option. Coaching is not a soft option. You're empathetic, but you're also trying to push them and get them out of their comfort zone. So the five parts to it, the, the outcome focused, the exclusively there for you, the deep listening, the confidentiality, and the supportive and challenging side is, I believe, is a unique conversation that you don't have anywhere else. Yeah. Most of our listeners will have probably been introduced to their chairs for the first time uh, as you know, the role of the chair is to coach and mentor. What's, what's your perspective on that as an ex-investor and now a coach? Can that really happen? I mean, that, that chairman relationship is key, but the chairman is more likely to be using mentoring rather than coaching. Uh -huh. To explain the difference, going back to what I've just said, mentoring is more about 
I'm more experienced. I'm going to tell you how, how it worked for me. And actually, although mentoring, I think is very, it has its positives, it's not very energy enhancing when you're telling someone about telling someone what to do. Yeah. The, on the coaching side, when they come up, you're encouraging them to come up with their own solutions. That's energy enhancing. Mm. They're much more likely to do it if, if they've come up with it. Yeah. Um, so it's a different type of relationship. Both have their places. And to be honest, when I'm coaching, you, I will do an element of mentoring if I think it's suiting, going to suit the, the coachee. Mm -hmm. So you mix it up. But the chairman has other responsibilities too. Yeah. We're there exclusively for you. Yeah, they are accountable yeah. uh, for that business and for the strategic direction and the, some of the you know, big decisions that are being made. So they're not completely, they're not that person that you described that a coach is and is completely impartial. So, so how many times do you get together? I mean, let's just talk about some of the practicalities before we talk about the approach. But I mean, you know, how many times do you meet uh, a coachee? How long are the sessions? How long do you work with somebody for? Initially, I do ask if we can do a 360. So that basically that's me interviewing people they work with, their, their chairman, their peers, their colleagues. And I, I do ask if I can, inter if I can uh, interview their partners, but they don't always agree to that. Uh, it's not a necessity, but that's very useful for, for to accelerate my understanding of them. Um, but typically, it's initially a session every couple of weeks, and that can settle into once a month, but it really does depend on the individual. I do some I'm coaching once a week, particularly if there's there's a big thing going on and they're trying to sort something out. And some people might be every quarter, but it's typically initially twice, twice a month and then every month. Mm -hmm. And the core, you know, we're, we're looking at, well, a lot of them over Zoom calls now rather than face-to-face because, -face you know, because of COVID. And they're an hour, they're 90 minutes to two hour sessions. But again, it depends on the individual. Your practice is called Fit to Lead, isn't it? Um, and you've developed a process within your practice uh, you, you've developed and defined a process that is uniquely yours in terms of how you coach around five core pillars so talk, talk us through your approach I mean if I was a coachee what would you take me through in terms of those five pillars well the core beliefs behind it are that firstly that energy is the currency of high performance so everything we do our habits, our actions, our thoughts, our emotions have energy attached to it. And secondly, we believe peak performance comes from the five separate but related pillars. Uh, each of the pillars are inextricably linked and each is key to peak performance. We don't believe you can separate mind and body. You can't separate the personal life from the professional life. So by being holistically fit, we help close the gap between what you currently do and what you're capable of doing. The, there's a great quote by um, Mahatma Gandhi about human potential. The difference between what we do and what we're capable of doing would suffice to solve most of the world's problems. Third core belief of the five pillars is that we build 
emotional, and the five pillars are emotional, mental, existential, physical, and social, we build all of all the, the fitness pillars in the same way you build physical capacity. So like you go to the gym, you build up your muscles, that's what we believe you need to do in, in, in the other fitness areas. So you can overtrain, you can undertrain, and that can have a destabilizing effect. You know, you, lots of entrepreneurs have the accelerator full on uh, all the time and they've ignored their physical well-being. Mm -hmm. We don't, we believe in order to sustain, you know, and to achieve peak performance, you need to, you need to bring, tr train up on the physical side and perhaps, you know, be a smarter worker rather than work longer hours. Mm -hmm. So you have to get out of the comfort zone in order to improve but then you also need to recover. But you have to keep working on it. So if you, it's like a muscle, you know, if you, if you have a broken a bone, have the cast on, the yeah. muscle disappears quickly. If you're not challenging yourself mentally, you lose your, your edge. If you're not reassessing your values all the time, your existential fitness goes down. If you're not socially emotionally connecting with others and your own emotions, you lose your social and emotional fitness. So you have to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth point is about the exponential effect it has on others. So we, we focus on getting the leaders fit and then once they're fit, they're then able to help others within their organization. Mm -hmm. So the four core beliefs, energy is the currency of high performance. Peak performance comes from the five separate but related um, pillars. You build capacity in all the areas like you build physical capacity and the exponential effect it can have on others. Mm -hmm. Talk me through how you might apply that in your, in your early sessions. <laughs> you know, in very basic terms, you're going to say to me, Sam, you've, you've clearly locked down, you've been eating a bit. Um, you, need to, you need to get into the gym. I mean, you know, that's sort of oversimplifying it, I'm sure. But I mean, how, how do you work on me across those five pillars? Well, to, I mean, let, let's say, let's, let's, um, obviously you're looking in fine shape, so, so um, this is hypothetical, but um, let's say, you know, physical fitness is an is a area that we, that you want to focus on. I mean, I'm obviously not going to sit there and, and go, let's do some press-ups. Let, let, <laughs> so what, what I would do there, let's say you had a, a desire to lose weight, I would talk about habits. Now, habits to me are the execution of what you want to achieve. They are turning that knowledge. So we all know we need to be, you know, the benefits of being healthy and exercising, but that knowledge doesn't get turned into behavior change. You know, the outcomes, the, the weight that you've hypothetically put on is the outcome of your behaviors over the last few years. Yeah. yeah James Clear, who wrote a great book on habits, The Atomic Habits, he talks about habits being the compound interest of self-improvement. And he talks about if you improve 1% each day, mm. at the end of the year, you're 37 times better. Mm. So anyway, at fit to lead we've developed an eight-step methodology on how to form habits. And um, so I would go through that methodology with you, but we haven't got time to go through that. But talking about the first one, the first step, is about identity. So we believe if you focus on identity-focused uh, habits, 
they're more likely to be sustainable. So rather than goal focus. So what I mean is, I want to a goal. A goal is I want to lose ten kilos. The problem is you might achieve that, and then what? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a identity focus of I, I am a runner. That may sound like fake it till you make it a bit if you're not a runner right now, but it helps create movement, and it helps you develop a habit that will be sustainable. Yeah. So that's the core starting point of any habit formation that that, that I do with clients. So I'm tra- so let's say you came back from work, you got back to Brighton, mm-hmm. um, and you're saying to yourself, "I'm a runner." You walk in the door. You know, what, what does a runner do? Does he sit on the sofa and watch Netflix? No, he puts on his running kit and he goes for a run. Uh, obviously, there are, many, you know, there are seven other aspects to it. So, Yeah, I understand. It's very different from saying, you know, I, I want to achieve that goal of losing pounds. It's actually the habit is I want to, I want to find something that I identify with and I enjoy and that's going to become a sort of general practice of my behavior rather than pushing towards a particular target or goal but actually the practice of um becoming really high quality in in living your habits is it's very easy to say it's very easy to read but actually it's quite difficult to do especially if you're a super busy ceo um because you know you get up early and you're at your at your desk or at a meeting at seven thirty and you're not finished till God knows what time and you know finding time and 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 energy to put into some of these habits is quite difficult to do. It's very easy to fall into that trap. Yeah. So so how do you do it? Well, the key thing, one thing at a time. Leaders think they can do lot, make lots of change all at once. They but it doesn't work. So. The first decision is, right, what, what's the one thing I want to focus on? And then it is creating the system, the identity, you know. So a different goal might be, I want to be a concise speaker at meetings. Whereas an identity is, I am a clear communicator. So you're talking in the present about who you are. So first, so it is the identify the one thing, and then it is going through the steps. I mean, a couple more of the steps, if you want to go a bit further, you know, a key thing is, is the implementation uh, statement. So I am going to go for a run at 7am, Monday, Tuesday and Friday for five minutes or 20 minutes. Sounds basic, but saying it out loud, writing it down, telling other people is, is, is part of the process. Mm-hmm. But also when you're developing new habits, you want to achieve success. So I use the two minute rule, you know, li- I mean, literally one of, the, one of the, my coaches had done no exercise for a very long time. And this is when gyms were open. He, he started off going to the gym. He would touch the um, running machine, hang around there for two minutes and then come back home. Now I made him do it for two minutes initially because he'd go back home and he's, you're hacking the brain. The brain's going, I've just succeeded in that. Because too often, after New Year, New Year's resolutions, right, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week, 30 minutes. You do it for the first month and it falls away. Mm-hmm. The trick is to, to, to start small and, and build it up. The other trick is to celebrate when you've done it. 
even if it's just the two minutes. And you want to stop at the two minutes, even if you can go for longer. And that just tells the brain and it reinforces your identity too. So that's just going into a bit more detail about the methodology. Yeah. And this is a methodology you apply across the five pillars. Of course. Uh, we, we've been talking about exercise, but I mean, just before we move on, I mean, I'd be quite keen to sort of explore in a bit more depth around the mental fitness, because when we were on a, uh, when we were preparing for this in a, in a conversation a few weeks ago, you talked about um, decision-making. Mm which I think is one of the big challenges for private equity-backed CEOs uh, for the first time in the clarity of thinking around decision-making. Well, I often ask the question, when was the last time you thought about your decision-making? When was the last time you thought about how you make decisions? Yeah, you never think about it. You know, we make between 12,000 and 60,000 decisions a day most of those are automatic, but even on the irreversible and consequential decisions, we often go with the first thing that comes into our mind. We respond to problems, as you say, in the same old way. We look at issues from the same perspective each time, and we make decisions as we've always done. Very few people deliberately, consciously practice at improving their decision making I compare it to driving so you remember you know you you have lots of lessons you accelerate your learning you pass the test hopefully and then you get better over the next few months but then most of us have never really got better since we were 20 years old at our at driving because we haven't deliberately practiced and that's what happens with decision making we don't deliberately practice at getting better so we think at fit to lead that, that um, you can improve your decision making. It is a skill. And the way we, one of the main ways we help our clients with that is to increase their um, repertoire of mental models. So mental models basically um, are tools to help us make decisions. They, they're representations of how we think the world works. We, you probably use a whole bunch of mental models subconsciously, opportunity cost, supply and demand, prob probabilistic thinking. So all these, all these, all these um, models that have come from different disciplines, we believe by, you don't have to understand them in depth, by having them in your repertoire and then applying them to certain decisions and learning which ones to apply to certain decisions helps you increase the number of lenses you look at a problem helps you understand the interconnections and have and gives you a more accurate perspective on something. So if you think about um, a forest, a botanist will focus on the ecosystem. The environmentalist will, will focus on climate change. A forest engineer, the state of the tree growth and a businessman, the value of the land. No one's perspective is wrong, but no one has full scope. So through developing your mental models and learning how to apply them, you, you override the blind spots. We all have blind spots. You override the biases. So that's a major focus of what we do to fit the lead. And I've got an example um, with one of my clients who, the one I'm thinking of, we had spent time developing his, his repertoire of mental models. And 
a key part of the, the, the learning is writing a decision journal. I mean, I recommend to everyone to write a decision journal. Now, on your major issue, on your major, you know, problems and decisions, he was starting off on kind of many decisions as he was practicing. And, it, and just to give you a simple example, um, he was wrestling with the commute. And, you know, we've all been forced to work at home. And he decided to look at, you know, weighing up whether to go back into the office, what he should do with his team. And he consciously used opportunity cost to now look at what he should do. And previously he looked at, he, he thought it was worth the one and a half hour journey there and back. It was worth the train ticket in order to get a bigger house and a bigger garden. But by consciously using the opportunity cost model, he started to, to look at value and cost differently. Family life versus work life. You know, he loved his work, but he's, he, he said, look, I wish I'd consciously looked at this two or three years ago, because I would have made, I would have changed my lifestyle back then. So it's a simple example of bringing in mental models. Mm. Um, I mean, another example might be a business example like um, during lockdown, one of my clients was wrestling with whether he should um, increase or decrease his marketing spend. Uh, it was an online business. My, you know, survival, obviously, March time, sensible, cut costs, but he was looking at every line. He saw most of his rivals, you know, cut, cut their marketing, online marketing costs. And he applied second order thinking second order thinking where you don't just look at something at face value you look at the second the third the nth possibility and it's something we unconsciously do but when you apply it consciously you do it with much more clarity and much more detail and he thought well hang on people are going to be at home people are going to be probably online people might be wanting to order furniture and the rates will come down Google AdWords. So he thought, you know, I'm going to up my marketing spend, which was a brave thing to do and went against the grain. But by applying that second order thing, and what actually happened was, yes, there was distribution logistics wasn't happening during March because of lockdown, but April it was, he was able to distribute his product and April, he had his best April ever. So he was consciously applying the mental model. So we, we think it, it can take time to build the repertoire, it can take time to learn how to apply them. But the, and the decision-making journal is key to that. Mm. But by becoming a conscious decision-maker with a, an array of mental models, we think it's going to give you an edge. Yeah. And this, this is the power of coaching at the end of the day. You know, not always, if you go back to your analogy of the uh, 12-year-old playing squash you know if you, you continue to hit that backhand in the same way as you always did yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't have made any improvements and and you know reach the level that your potential allowed you to uh the, the, there are five um pillars and we won't talk about them all but the third one that just resonates loudly certainly in the sort of p environment is social fitness and i think in social fitness you're talking about the ability, the, the fitness to lead and the fitness to lead a high-performing team, your effect on others, is, is, is that fair to say? Because in, these, in this private equity world, the, the, the need to develop, as, as you know better than me, a really high-quality team and a high-performing team and a culture that goes with it is, 
is just uh, an essential part of getting a private equity investment working well. Yeah, the core part of the social fitness side is about culture and about team effectiveness. One example is about meetings. We think meetings are critical to culture. 60 to 80% of executives' times could be in meetings. Mm. Um, And it really upsets me. I've been in lots of board meetings and so often the wrong people are in there. We're not discussing the right topics. Egos are flying around and it's wasting so much time. And I, I, in my experience, I don't think a good board guarantees success, but I think a bad board will guarantee you will not, the company will not fulfill its potential. You know, 71% of people say meetings are unproductive, 90% admit to daydreaming, yet research shows that leaders consistently rate their meetings more favorably and more positively than the attendees. Mm-hmm. So fit to lead, the goal in a meeting is to create an environment to optimize the thinking of the individual and the group. We can help you with the discipline and skills of, of, of running a good meeting, but for, for us the more important bit is developing the behaviors in a good meeting, the listening, the communication, the facilitation, the influencing. So that's what we focus on. Mm. and. The benefits of running a good meeting go way beyond the actual meeting itself and have a ripple effect um, into the organization. If there's, if there's, one, there's one example that I'm thinking of with one client who had taken on board a private equity investor uh, six months before I started coaching them. And she, she admitted she hadn't fully appreciated what she'd signed up to and she was having some difficulties in certain areas. And one area was the board meeting. She was frustrated with how much time that her and her team were putting into the prep and the meeting themselves weren't adding any value. So we had a session, we had a coaching session on it. And I, and I asked her, you know, what do you think board meetings are for? And she said, well, I don't know. What do you think? And she, she should have been used to what I'm used to saying, I'm not going to tell you what I think, you know, let's explore. I'll tell you if you still want to hear my opinions after we've explored your ideas. So, so she, she thought about it and she said, well, I think, you know, keep the investors happy, get sign off on new projects, uh, do a bit of admin, um, have a debate about what the issues that I'm wrestling with. So how's the time allocated at the moment in your board meetings? Well, I think, you know, 70% um, information sharing, 10% admin, 20% debate. What do, you, what do you want to get out of these meetings? Well, I want value, value add. I want the board to work for me and the team. How would you like the time to be allocated? Well, I'd like 70% of the time on debate. 10% admin's fine and 20% on the, on the information sharing, perhaps. So we spent the session co-creating what to do. And a few of the things that we came up with was obviously sort out time spent on the deck. And, you know, they had the conversation with the private equity house and they still put a lot of effort into the deck. But people, they didn't, they said, look, we're not going to run through the deck. If you've got any questions, yeah. we'll answer the questions. Read the deck. Read the deck. 
And that's key. That's key to any meeting is, is you know, it shouldn't be an, inf- in my opinion, it shouldn't be an information sharing. You don't need a meeting to share information. Yeah. People can read it. The, the second thing on the debate thing was to pose questions so that people could think properly around the topic. And the sort of behavior change, behavior changes we proposed was, was the no interruptions and limiting how long you could speak. The, the board meetings were transformed. People looked forward to them, lively debates, and it had a positive effect beyond the meeting. It had a real positive effect on the culture of the business. The whole meeting culture changed. They started applying these, these um, tools to, to other meetings than board meetings. You know, and the relationship that she then developed with the private equity house was transformed. Very good. So we've talked about the five pillars, three of the five pillars, and um, we might do it a second podcast to go through the other two. Uh, and, but, but I suppose just to finish this off, you know, I'm your coachee, so you know, I, I understand now how we're going to engage, how often we engage, probably for how long we're going to engage, and really what we're going to work on. But it, how, do we, how do you set each session up in terms of just maximizing the value for your coach and for yourself. We have agreed what outcomes that you want. We hold on to those lightly though, because obviously things come up as, as, as we coach, perhaps issues that you presented to me are actually not the root cause and, and we change the outcome. So it's good to have the outcomes, but we hold on to them lightly. I mean, if, you, if you're talking about a typical session, I don't go in with a prescribed way, I don't have a prescribed way of doing things, but a model that I will use some of the time is the GROW model. Okay. Um, and there are four, so four steps, G-R-O-W. The G is the goal. What do you want to get out of this session? It's, we're, we're very granular on what the goal is, and we can spend a lot of time on that, because that can often free up the solution. The R is the reality. So we, we help the coachee make sure they're not missing anything out when they're looking at an issue. Mm-hmm. The O is options. Often coaches come to us and they're stuck on something. So we need to kind of foster creativity. We, we want them to think out of, out of the box. We you can use the mental models that we talked about earlier, but I mean, often the question, it may sound, you know, uh, it, it, but a question that often works, you know, if you had a magic wand, what would you do? And things come out. Um, so once they broaden their perspective, we then bring it down and bring it down to a number of um, action. You know, we look at the pros and cons and we bring it down to a couple of action points. And the W is two aspects to it. What will you do? So that's kind of the action plan. Um, and what's your motivation to do it? And I will ask the question, how motivated are you to do X, Y, Z? And if it's eight, nine, or ten, great. I, I, I'm happy with that. If it's seven or below, I ask the question, so what would get it to eight or nine? And sometimes it's resources, sometimes it's a training course, sometimes it's help in other ways. So that, and but they walk out with an action plan. They're motivated to do it. They've come up with a solution. There'll be some element of co-creation. So they're very motivated to do it. Mm. So that can be a typical session, but that's not every session. 
Mm. My last question, coaching in, in the US is huge, isn't it? I mean, um, and, it, and it's, it, it's really evolved here in the UK in a corporate environment. Uh, corporates have embraced coaching as a way of developing internal talent. But in the, in the private equity world, and it, it, you know, I know a lot, of, a lot of work that you do is in the venture capital work. And again, there, coaching is largely embraced, isn't it? But in the, in the private equity world, it's, it's pretty narrow, actually, isn't it? We have the advantage of having access to hundreds of private equity-backed CEOs. We have a group of 55, 60 founding members who've, um, who've been through this on numerous occasions. And not many of them, some have, but the minority, have worked with coaches. Well, why, why is that, do you think? Well, I think it's lack of, to, to some degree, it's, it's lack of knowledge about what coaching is, is about. I definitely didn't know what coaching was about 10 years ago. I'd heard about sports coaching, but I hadn't really heard about business coaching. So I think it's more prevalent in larger companies, as you say. I th- think people think it's perhaps too expensive. People think it's for remedial purposes. But I am, I'm coaching people to be great who are already good. And that's, that's, that's terrible. That, that's that's the, the idea there's got to be something dreadfully wrong before yeah. a coach gets involved. Still, it's... still happens. Mm. Yeah. Well... Those out listening who uh, who want to give it a go, they can they can come to us. You probably can get peppered on LinkedIn there, but um, if you want an introduction to Mark, then just just drop me an email and uh, we'll connect you. But thanks, Mark. It's been really good, really insightful, very interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sam. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and you know, I look forward to the the second second podcast when I can talk about the other pillars. Uh, actually, one of your founder members had made a introduction to a potential coachee earlier today so before he's listened to the podcast so he was obviously <laughs> anticipating oh, that's good. Uh, strong performance so good stuff all right so thank you no worries thank you for listening to this episode of private equity power talks map of the maze please subscribe for a new episode each month and share with anyone in your network you think may be interested if you have any questions for us about Pep Talks membership or anything else, please email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. And thank you for listening.